what I'm going to do today is just do an overview of the book of Philippians as it pertains to what we've been talking about. I rarely preach my political preferences and opinions. You rarely hear me say, in fact, you probably never heard me say who I'm going to vote for or most of the issues I'm going to vote for. And the reason is that I believe if we're to reach people for Christ and politics can become an obstacle to them, to them by distracting them from what really matters. Politics can get in the way of what really matters. Politics can be very divisive and the truth of Christ can be rejected not because it does not have a solid intellectual basis, but because some political bias uh, of some political biasism, it keeps them even looking at the gospel to say, ah, they believe this politically, therefore the gospel and Christians must, we must reject. And we see that mentality often. But there's a second reason I seldom speak about politics, because I do not believe the resolution to our greatest needs in our culture and in our lives can be solved through political solutions. Politics isn't the answer. I'm a firm believer in that. Politics can create the problem, but they don't know if they can ever always fix the problem. I do not believe in utopias because evil exists in each and every heart. And until that is resolved, there can be no utopias. Our greatest needs are spiritual and eternal. Politics cannot change the heart of a man. Only Christ can do that. And how, having said that, I understand that spiritual realities often have political implications. And this is no truer than the topic we've been talking about in the last few months. To me, the victim culture is more of a spiritual issue. I tend to have in myself more conservative values based on the Judeo-Christian ethic that was central to the ideas of Western civilization. And in light of that, one of the men I've read over the years and have gained very high respect for is not a preacher, not a theologian but a professor from Stanford University, a brilliant man in my estimation. He's a black man and also an economist. His name is Thomas Sowell. And I've read most of his books and find them very insightful. In fact, as I was preparing for the sermon, I thought I would cite a few quotes from him, only to realize it was difficult to select from them to make my point. So I wound up putting more than I really anticipated, so you'll put up with me if you would. And I don't equate him to Scripture, don't, so don't think I'm, I'm saying, here's Scripture, here's Thomas Sowell, and they're equal. I don't believe that in any sense of the word, but he is a very intelligent, very insightful man. So let me make the attempt, because I believe they pertain to our topic of rising above the victim culture. Let's just read some of his quotes. One of them is, envy was once considered one of the most deadly sins before it became one of the most admired virtues under the new name social justice. He goes on, in illiberal logic, if life is higher, then the answer is to turn more tax money over to politicians to spend in ways that will increase their chances of getting reelected. Intellectuals like to think of themselves as people who speak truth to power, but too often they're people who speak lies to gain power. He goes on, you can only confiscate wealth that exists at a given moment. You cannot confiscate future wealth, and that's not likely to be produced when it's being confiscated. Or how about this one? One of the consequences of such motions of entitlement contributed nothing to society, feel that society owes them something apparently just for being nice enough to grace us with their presence. I'm getting close here. We're almost done. But these are just too good. Just, you know, they're just very insightful. You have to read them in their context, too. They make all that more, much more sense. Uh, it's hard to imagine a more stupid or dangerous way of making decisions. And by putting the 
the hands of people who pay no price for being wrong. He goes on, socialism in general has a failed record so blatant that only an intellectual could ignore or evade it. I like that one. Let's go on. The first lesson of economics is scarcity. There's never enough of anything to satisfy all those who want it. The first lesson of politics is to ignore the first lesson of economics. Another one. Since this is an era when many people are concerned about fair social justice, what is your fair share of what somebody else has worked for? How about this one? We seem to be moving steadily in a direction in the society where no one is responsible for what he did, but we are all responsible for what someone else did in the past or in the present. And I close with this one. Nobody is equal to anybody. I like this one. Even the same man is not equal to himself on any given day. I like that one. Nobody is equal to anybody. Even the same man is equal, not equal to himself on any given day. And that's certainly true for me. You know, over the last few months, we've been studying the book of Philippians and applying to the context of the victim culture that we find ourselves. And we, today we're going to bring that study to a conclusion that will look at an overview of the book on some of the highlights of the book. But I think if you want to ever read a guy that I think is uh, insightful about the issues, he's one I would recommend that you read. The victim culture is an attempt to remove a perceived abuse of power by an oppressive, privileged group that can be identified as cultural Marxism or identity politics. And while it claims to pursue absolute equality, it misses the mark by creating reverse discrimination by oppressing the very oppressors they claim they have abused, uh, that have abused them. It's power that reverses the roles and creates division and not unity. We have seen that Philippians offers a far better alternative. This morning, I want to look at four things that the book tells us about God's path to greatness, God's path to power, true power in his estimation of what it is. And his path involves four things, living for an eternal cause. Number two, humbling ourselves in complete obedience to Christ. Number three, using the freedom he gives us in Christ to serve him. And four, recognizing and accepting God's sovereignty over all areas of life. So let's break those down and look at all four of those things to make the point is that God's path to greatness, first of all, is a path that involves living for an eternal cause greater than oneself. And we will find that in chapter one of the book of Philippians. It is a willingness to share Christ, even at any cost. Now, Paul opens the book by thanking the church of Philippi for sharing with them in the proclamation of the gospel and the prayers that their faith will abound. And he says this, And my prayer that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise God. Our lives have meaning, eternal meaning. But also there's a willingness to suffer, to to exalt Christ. Remember, Paul is in prison as he writes this book, and he writes these verses. The church also was suffering, even if they were assisting him, and he states three things about suffering. First of all, suffering is a a means to share Christ. In Paul's day, sharing the gospel at risk, both physically and emotionally. The early church were timid, as we tend to be today. If when people criticize them, go, oh, that's bad, you can't do that to me. That's not what they were like. And if the early church were timid, it would not have grown to the degree it did and had the level of influence it did throughout history. And the same needs to be done today. We need to be bold in sharing and holding on to our faith, knowing full well that some people won't like us. We may face rejection in some case, 
consequences that we would otherwise find unfavorable. Today, unlike Paul's day, they don't use prison if you're proclaiming the gospel. They use council culture. They will destroy your life and your career. And that's what's happening over and over again. You know the stories. You've heard them. That's the new approach. We don't put you in prison, but we will make sure you can't work for the rest of your life. We will destroy your reputation. And that's what has and is being done in this new approach. But we also see that suffering is a means to exalt Christ. As Christians remain unmoved and unyielding in their faith, Christ is exalted. When they see the stability of it, not based on just stubbornness, but based on an intellectual, solid foundation. You see, there's a reason that more conservative churches grow. It's because they have something to stand for. They stand for something. They're not compromised with the world around them. They believe that the Bible is the Word of God, and that becomes the basis for what they believe. But number three, suffering leads to boldness. I love Acts chapter 4. I've preached on it before here. You might remember the story where they arrested Peter and James. They put them in prison because they were proclaiming Jesus Christ, and the, they, they were called to the, the the Pharisaic court, and the Pharisaic court said to them, stop preaching, don't say anything about Jesus Christ. I mean, they had just killed him just days and weeks before. They had just put Christ to death, and he rose again. The story's all around. The leaders don't know what to do about it, so they see disciples proclaiming and say, shut up, don't speak. And I love Peter's response. You judge for yourself whether we should obey God rather than man. There's a boldness, and then they went and they prayed for boldness, and God gave it to them. And then through that boldness, the gospel was expanded. When churches lose their passion for reaching the lost, they become what we call client-centered, inward focus. It's about me. You're here to satisfy means, my needs and my concerns. You didn't preach a good sermon this Sunday. You did my needs. I didn't feel good. Therefore, I'm not coming next Sunday, or I'm not going to give. I'm not going to participate because it's about me. And they begin to live for themselves. And if that's what a church is, we're in trouble. You see, one of the downsides of the customer's king philosophy in the, in the U.S. and Canada is that we think we have a, have a right to have things done our way. It's almost intrinsic. Customer's always right. And what this produces is churches that are filled with consumers and their own good is the purpose for the church in contrast to church of servants who have focused on obedience to Christ, one that can transform the world. There's a saying... Better to try something great and fail than to try nothing at all. So it is true that we are trying to make the gospel of Jesus Christ known throughout the world. And if we fail in that attempt, it's not a lost battle. Because Christ will use it. God will use it. There's a second response to the point of God's path to greatness. It's the path that involves humbling yourself in complete obedience. He speaks about in in Philippians chapter 2. He shows that humility is modeled by Jesus. Paul opens the chapter with the admonition to the church to be like-minded. And not just be like-minded, but it's to have the mind of Christ. Let this mind be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus. Have the mindset of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. It doesn't stop there. We don't leave Christ in the grave. He doesn't remain dead. 
He humbled himself willingly to go to the grave itself, but he doesn't stay there because here's what it goes on to say. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus Christ humbled himself in complete obedience to God. He faced the ultimate humiliation, the ultimate shame as people put him on this brutal cross and God did the exalting. And he becomes our model. He becomes our example. Let this mind be in you, which is in Christ Jesus, that we humble ourselves before each other and let Christ, let God exalt us. But that same humility as the chapter goes on, chapter 2, is modeled by Paul and Timothy. And the core things that Christ model are sacrifice and humility. Paul admonishes the church to do the same when he tells them that both Timothy and himself provide a model for them as well. And my point is simply this. This is Christ's model. This is God's model for how to transform the world if, that's, if that were our goal, our goal. Is that we give ourselves in obedience to God, humble ourselves before Him, love each other, sacrifice for each other, take the cost, and let God do the exalting. The black leader, John Perkins, well-known Christian preacher, has written movingly about the need for racial reconciliation even after his painful encounter with brutal racist. In his latest book, Dream With Me, it's Race, Love, and the Struggle We Must Win. He writes this, and I'm quoting, In Hebrew, Mississippi, I grew up around poor white folks who felt they were better than blacks and expected us to move out of their way when they were walking down the street. They were oppressors, and common knowledge through the years was that in rural areas, poor whites sought to become sheriffs, cops, or guards to have some power over society. So we did not have a great relationship with them. To be honest, I never had given a second thought to poor whites. I still regarded them negatively as a redneck trailer park trash. But over the years, Christ has slowly transformed John Perkins' view of poor white people. He tells a story about watching white people come to a church site that distributed food for the poor. And Perkins writes this, Sometimes when I visited the church, I would just hang back and watch the people come and go as they picked up food items. I always found the behavior of white people quite curious. Their body language showed so much shame, one could almost think they were stealing the food. I noted that these white folk didn't have a voice or anyone in power to stand up for them, that they too were victims exploited politically by those in power. And many times the man of the family would not even go inside for, to get food, rather he would sit outside in the truck and send in his wife. And I've gone from almost hating them when I was young and angry and they were bigoted and violent to genuinely loving them as brothers and sisters. I think about how many poor white folks respond to me so positively when I speak today. Often I can see a spark in their eyes. I'm truly sorry that I neglected the needs of the, these neighbors of mine and have not responded often enough to the spark. And Perkins concludes with this. There's one thing I now know I would change if I had the chance to do it all over again. I would do more to help poor white folks. What motivated them? It's love for Christ. It's love for Christ. You know, we need to look past skin color and ethnic background. Many suffer as victims. It's not simply as an issue of race or status. Life is hard for all of us, and we need to encourage each other. And that takes humility. For us to say, I need you. 
and for others to say, they need you. There is a third point to note regarding God's path to greatness. It's a path that involves using our freedom in Christ to serve Him. One of the points that Paul makes in this chapter that we are free due to righteousness by faith. One of the key prosecutors of the early church was the Pharisaic Jews who despised people like Philippian Gentiles. These Greek Philippian Gentiles, they were despised by the Jews because they were heathen. These Pharisaic Jews that had become Christians, they were demanding that to become a Christian, you had to practice the Old Testament law something that they themselves could not do. And he, it, he placed, they placed a heavy burden on them that stripped them of their freedom and of their joy in Christ. Paul goes on in that same chapter and says, we need to strive to become more like Christ because we're free in Christ. We're free to serve and to become more like Him. Paul spoke of this striving to become more like Christ. He, had not, he said, I have not even arrived myself. I'm not there yet. I'm still pressing forward. And he calls us to follow his lead and do the same. In becoming more like Christ, we will have enemies who will oppose us. These enemies, as he says, have their minds on earthly things, where he says to us in this chapter, our citizenship is in heaven, and we have a Savior who will transform our minds and our bodies to be like that of Jesus. Look what he says, verse 20. But our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that we will be like his glorious body. Let me tell you a phenomenal story to illustrate our freedom in Christ. In 2002, a high school student named Brian Banks was one of the most highly recruited football prospects in the nation. But all his dreams crashed when he was arrested and convicted on rape charges and he was sent to prison. After 10 years, his accuser finally admitted she was lying. And now Banks is a free man and football teams are giving him some wild offers to try out. But there's an amazing angle on this story. After serving 62 months in prison, the first thing that Banks did, aside from crying at the courtroom table, was to cut the monitor strapped to his ankle. And Banks said, oh man, when that thing came off, There are no words. Every Christian should feel the same way, and even better. You see, we were guilty as charged. We did have a monitor that says that proclaimed our guilt before God, and yet in Christ, we can remove the monitor of shame and guilt and condemnation because God took the guilt and penalty of sin when he died on the cross and is all forgiven. One of my issues with the victim culture, it has, because it has a similar common that the Old Testament law had, and that it's very legalistic. It makes unrealistic and impractical demands of people and judges them harshly when they fail to achieve their requirements. It's clear in the best-selling book, White Fragility, by Robin DiAngelo. Basically, what her, in her point, without getting into the details of the book, you're condemned simply for being white. If you're white, you're condemned already. Just by being white, we're guilty of racism. But you see, the gospel of Jesus Christ frees us from all condemnation when we place our faith and trust in Jesus. We're not called to live in guilt all the time. We're not called to live as victims all the time. We're not. We have Jesus Christ who died on the cross and we rose again with him. 
And he, we might have hard circumstances in life and difficult circumstances in life, but at the core, the thing that really matters is that of eternity, we will be in the presence of God himself. There's a third thing to note about God's path to greatness is a path that involves recognizing God's sovereignty over all areas of our lives. That's Philippians chapter 4. We looked at that last week. And when we recognize God's sovereignty, it impacts how we pray. He says, stop worrying about anything with, with everything by prayer and supplication. Let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God that passes all understanding keeps your heart and minds in Christ Jesus. We bring our requests and our need before God in prayer because He's the sovereign God, and He hears them. We let it go, and we take it off of our burden, and we say, God, it's your burden now, and He'll take care of it. We give our concerns to God. He may not do it the way you want to do it. He may not fix it the way you want it fixed. But ultimately, his way is far better. But also, the sovereignty of God impacts how we think. We are told to think about whatever is true, whatever is lovely, whatever noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable. If anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about these things. We can control what we think. We can control the patterns of our thought processes, according to what Paul is saying here. And that's why we spend the time in the Word of God. That's why we spend time with other Christians who are building us up in Christ and helping us to grow in Him. But Paul goes on in that same chapter, it also impacts what we do. Right after saying these things about what you think, what you're thinking on, he says this, whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put into practice and the God of peace will be with you. He then goes on to tell us how he can be content and how he can endure all things through Christ who gives him strength. Why? Because he realizes God is in control. And he may let you go through some hard and difficult times, and you probably will, and you probably already have been. God's in control, and we trust him, and he is doing something with that that we may not have any clue about what that may be. When I was a pastor, planted a church in Idaho, Idaho Falls, Idaho, we had a gal there named Kathy Sanders, and she was an author. Most, like most authors I know, there's a little quirky side to them. You know, I've known several authors. Well, I guess I'm an author too. Well, yeah, it proves my point, doesn't it? So <laughs> my point there being, Kathy was an interesting character, but she did write some good poetry. Not that I'm a big poet fan, but some of the stuff I read go, wow, that, that was pretty good. Well, she wrote one in particular, and it was published in Decision Magazine. We don't see much of that today, but it was popular in July of 1988 when it came out. It was titled, The Race Goes to the Faithful. And at base, when she wrote this poem, goes back to Philippians as the foundation for what she wrote. It's a simple thing. She says, step by step, I run the race. Eyes focused on the goal, with aching muscles and labored breath, I strain toward the prize. My crown will not be of gold or fame, but welcome home, my child. Well done. Simple. And yet gets to the heart of Paul's message. This morning we looked at four things that Philippians tells us about God's path to greatness. We learned that his path involves living for an eternal cause. It involves humbling ourselves in complete obedience to God. It involves using the freedom Christ gives us to serve him. And fourthly, it involves recognizing and accepting God's sovereignty over all areas of our life. You see, sometimes in spiritual and biblical topics have political implications. The topic of the victim culture and socialism that underlie it is one such topic. If you remember, Karl Marx hated 
Christianity and Christians. He despised them. Ingalls, his cohort, the same thing. They attacked it constantly. But you also have men like Thomas Sowell who just bring wisdom to observing what's really going on that helps us to put things in perspective. Let's stop living and acting like victims. It's crippling. It's crippling. I know what hard life can be. When I was seven years old, my father died, and we had no money. And for whatever reason, my mom decided to move from Virginia to California. We still had that conversation when she was like, why did you even do that when all your family was here? Well, she had one sister in California. We moved to California. We lived in the Bay Area, just east of San Francisco a ways. My mom worked for a company called Berkeley Decals. Remember I told you once, my mom designed the Oakland Raiders logo that you still see on the helmets today. Uh, she did it while she was working there, and she didn't make a lot. Quit that job, worked another job, didn't make a lot. We lived pretty humble means over a lifetime. My mom never treated us like victims. We were not victims. We didn't act like poor people. It just was not part of our mindset. And then, of course, my, then I told you before, my mom remarried about four or five years later to a man that I now recognize was a paranoid schizophrenic, and he was very abusive. He would only be verbally abusive to us, but he was physically abusive with his own kids until my mom would call the police on him. And she did it more than once. But he would just berate and belittle. But we never saw ourselves as victims. And my point is simply this. Life is hard sometimes. It's tough. God throws things at us. We go, God, I don't know what in the world you're doing with this one. You keep telling me, you're, you know, all things work together for good, but I have no clue what that looks like. And sometimes we may never know what that is. And my point is simply this, but we're not victims. God's in control and we're children of God. And yes, he allows these things to come that we have no control over, but we trust him through it. Maybe we do go without food for a while. Certainly I could handle that. It wouldn't change, ruin my life a whole lot. I've got a lot of reserves to go get by with. And my point is this, we've got to break the victim mentality. It's dangerous. Because we'll always go, oh, woe is me, look at me, look what these people did to me, look what happened to my life, look what's going on, you live under this, oh, no, no, whoa, whoa. I'm a child of God. I have risen again with Jesus Christ through my faith in him. I died with him on the cross, I was buried in the grave with him, and I rose again to a new life. I am no victim, and neither are you. Several things to come out of this. We must be a community of servants who act together in obedience to God. Only then will God, God exalt us, and only then will we build each other up. If we're all clamoring for our own individual interests to be met, we will surely fail. We'll always be disappointed. The needs will always be there, and we'll never know contentment. In this community, what matters is people, not music, not dress, not economic status, not race, not oppressor versus oppressed. What matters is that we are united in Jesus Christ. Society and politics cannot make you content. It can't fix what ails us. Even the church cannot make you happy and content. Only Christ can do that. I can endure all things through Christ who strengthens me. But as a church, we can encourage each other. We can build each other up to become more like Christ. And as God's people who are citizens of heaven, we need to look out for each other. It's not a competition. None is better than the other. We all must come humbly before God, before the cross of Jesus Christ, laying at the cross humbly before him, and then God takes us and he exalts us. Actor and author Ben Stein had written a column for another eight years titled Monday Night at Morton's. The column detailed his encounters with the rich and famous. He's not writing it anymore. 
And Stein explained why in his final column on December 20th, 2003, and he says this, real stars are not riding around in the backs of limousines or the Porsches or getting trained in yoga or Pilates and eating raw fruit while they have Vietnamese girls do their nails. A real star, the kind who haunts my memory night and day, is the U.S. soldier from Baghdad who saw a little girl playing with a piece of unexploded ordnance. He pushed her aside and threw himself on it just as it exploded. I'm no longer comfortable with being part of a system that has such poor values, and I do not want to perpetuate those values by pretending that those who eat at Morton's is a big subject. Last column, I told you a few of the rules I had learned to keep my sanity. Well, here's the final one to keep your sanity and keep you in the running for stardom. We are puny, insignificant creatures. We are not responsible for the operation of the universe, and what happens to us is not terribly important. God is real, not a fiction. And when we turn our lives over to him, he, t- he takes far better care of us than we could ever do for ourselves. In a word, we make ourselves sane when we fire ourselves and the directors of the movie in, in our, of our lives and turn the power over to him. I can put it another way. Years ago, I realized I could never be as great an actor as Oliver or as good a comic as Steve Martin or Martin Mule or Fred Willard or as good an economist as Samuelson or Friedman or as good a writer as Fitzgerald or even remotely close to any of them but I could be a devoted father to my son, husband to my wife, and above all, a good son to the parents who have done so much for me. This came to be my main task in life. I came to realize that life lived to help others is the only one that matters and that it is my duty in return for the lavish life God has devolved upon me to help others he has placed in my path. Let's not live as victims, people. We've all had hard things in our life, and you're probably going to face some more. But God is in control. Now, when I see somebody who's going through a hard time, I want to be the first there to pray for them, to encourage them, to support them in any way that I possibly can, to build them up, to let them see who they are in Jesus Christ. They are a child of God with all the privileges that go with it.